morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. How are you guys? That wasn't me. Can't make that noise with my mouth. Um, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, I don't know how. I've, I've got. I'm like a new parent, like nine and a half month old. And um, after hearing that announcement, like apparently I should be really nervous about what's coming. I'm also. It's problematic for me because my brother was the guy who was saying how he realised he knew nothing, and um, he's been my go-to source for parenting advice, and I'm. <laughs> Really in trouble. <laughs> Parenting. Anyway, we all seem to make it one way or another. Hey. Anyway, um, I'm going to preach today from Romans chapter five, and uh, I don't know about you, but I've loved dig- digging into this book. And you know, it's like you. you uh, I've always dug Romans. Romans is awesome. Like it's got some of the most wonderful thought uh, from the ancient world, uh, and obviously it's so relevant to today too for those of us who are believers. But it's just such a glorious uh, celebration, I suppose, of what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to wrap up with Romans chapter five today. And before I go there, let's just pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for the gift of your word. I thank you that it's alive, sharper than a two-edged sword. I thank you, God, that. God, I speak with words, but you speak to the soul and spirits of people, and I pray that you do this that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm not going to get all the way through the chapter 5 of Romans. I'm, I'm hoping to make it through six verses. I might throw in a seventh, you know, it's like a bonus, but uh, six definitely. Uh, and it's the first six verses of Romans chapter 5. So it starts like this. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Uh, Paul's actually summarizing Romans chapter 4. And if you have been around church, you might have heard this statement. If you see it, therefore, you need to know what it's there for. (laughs) Clever. Um, And so the 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 reason it's there for um, is that in Romans chapter 4, Paul was writing about Abraham, and he was writing about the fact that through faith, people are both made righteous and enter into the promises of God, that as a believer, you're made right with God by your faith. You take your first step in the kingdom by your faith, um, but then you also enter into your destiny and your promises, and you might not know this or be convinced of this, but God's got a destiny, a plan for your life. There's going to be, for the way I think of this, there's going to be a conversation I have with God one day about my life and how I lived it, and with I really did that thing God called me to do. It's good works prepared beforehand for me, Ephesians 2 verse 10. Uh, and so the way we enter into the, that destiny is also through faith. That's how Abraham entered into his promises. Uh, and it says, because of our faith made right in God's heart by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Peace, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're born again, peace is your birthright. You don't get peace one day when you become really mature and like everything's cool and you kind of like the spiritual version of enlightened or Zen or something. It's not like you mature into peace. It's like it's amazing. I talk to people that the moment they gave their life to Jesus Christ, I ask them, "Hey, what, what happened?" I say, "I just felt this peace. I just had this peace in my life because the moment you're born again, peace is your birthright, and that peace is there because you have peace with God. You you didn't always have peace with God. You and God." were enemies, the Bible says, on account of your sin. And having God as an enemy is a problem because he's stronger. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and our faith in him, now we have peace with God, this sense that, that we're okay with God. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. 
And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Two points from this. Number one, your life, there's undeserved privilege over your life. You know, a lot has been said about privilege in the last few years in our nation. Some of it helpful, some of it unhelpful, which is actually like any of our conversations, really. You know, some are helpful and some unhelpful. But uh, there's been some really, I suppose, meaningful, deep conversations in the space. But the truth is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there's undeserved privilege over your life. There's something called favor. There's something called grace. You're going to put the same effort in and get a different return an exponential return because God's with you. And it's really going to annoy some people, especially religious people, because religious people are working hard to get what God's freely given them in Christ. And so they're going to look at your life and you're just going to get it because of the undeserved privilege. You don't have to earn it. And, and for those of us who have spent any amount of time, anyone spent more than 20 years in church? More than 20 years? A few people here? Okay. So you know what I'd like? Because church used to be a little bit more strict than it is now. Like, I grew up in church. I'm 38. So this is like 30 years ago now. We, we go to church, and you, if you're very spiritual, you'll go to church in a suit. In summer. In Durban. Without air conditioning. Which is actually a little bit like hell, I suppose. But... And the understanding was that because we were because you respected the house of God, then you could you went in a suit, and and that's how we showed respect to God. And now there's there's literally people who wear jeans and t-shirts, who are as anointed as the people in suits, and that's very annoying for the people who've been wearing suits for thirty years. <laughs> All that effort for nothing. <laughs> And that's the whole point, is that there's undeserved privilege, that there's not a performance, that you've got to perform your way into blessing or anointing or favor or any of these things. God just gives it to you. And then the next thing it says is that now we can confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Heaven is real. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, as surely as you're seated here, you're going to be in heaven one day in the very glory of God. I don't think we talk enough about heaven. I don't think we talk about nothing about anything in the Bible, but heaven too. I actually had this thought yesterday. Last night I was praying, and I was like, imagine the moment when at some point you realize you're no longer on earth, you're in heaven. Because we might just go to sleep one day and wake up in heaven. Imagine that moment where it's like, whoa, I'm aware, but I'm aware of different things. I'm aware of a different reality. I'm in a different space. There's... I don't know what to expect, but, you know, like maybe there's Pete St. Peter at the pearly gates. And I'm just like, how's it, Peter? But where's Jesus? I want to go see Jesus because the Bible says no one can see the face of God, the face of Jesus, and still live. But because you've died here, you can go see his face. Sense that glory is coming for us, that that's our destiny And what the Bible says and what Jesus taught is that actually the real glory of God is a relational glory. The glory of God is revealed in his love affair between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that we get pulled into this. And Jesus used language like this. He says, Father, as you are in me, so I am in them. In other words, the quality of the relationship between the Father and the Son is the same quality of relationship between the Son and us. In other words, we, be, we share equally in the relational glory of heaven because we, we're pulled into the relational epicenter of the Trinity. It's the, the Bible, I mean, I've used this language, so 
I don't know if it's theologically correct, but I don't care. Because I think it, it expresses something of the glory that awaits us, that God takes a trinity and makes it a quadrinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit and perfect relationship and all of a sudden Father, Son, Holy Spirit and church in perfect relationship. Not different, not subservient, not because we're as righteous as Jesus. That's what the Bible says. And as the Father is in Christ, so Christ is in us and we are in Him. This We share in His glory. Verse 3. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Sorry? Is that in your Bible too? We, we can rejoice woo, when we run into problems and trials. You know what that's called? That's called a theological whiplash. You are hitting 100 k's an hour. Paul is taking us in a... 100 k's an hour down this thing. Man, we've got, we're righteous, there's peace, there's undeserved privilege, there's waiting glory, and now we rejoice in problems and trials. And you're like, what? Like that came out of nowhere. Blindsided. And here's the thing is that at some point in our walk with Jesus, we've got to make peace with the fact that because we're followers of Jesus Christ, we're not immune to problems and trials. And that they, it doesn't mean you have a lack of peace with God. It doesn't mean that you, you have a lack of undeserved privilege, that suddenly the privilege we've lost it, or that we no longer have glory and hope of future glory. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. Because if you don't understand this, what's going to happen is you're going to go through problems and trials, and you're going to find yourself asking this question, God, did I do something wrong? Is it me? And then maybe you go down that road for a while and then you give up hope that maybe you can change you and then you start wondering, well, maybe it's you. <laughs> maybe you're not as good as the Bible says you are. Ever found yourself in those spaces? Asking those sorts of questions? Because our brains can't reconcile how come God loves me so much, how come I have peace, undeserved privilege, future glory, and I find myself in the midst of problems and trials. And if you don't make peace with this fact in your walk, you're always going to struggle. And so what I want to do today is I want to help you understand the purpose of problems and trials and how they're completely congruent. In other words, they make sense that, that they actually are, can coexist in our wonderful relationship with Jesus Christ. And that rather than a sign that there's something wrong with God, so often they're a sign that there's something right and that you're heading in the right direction. So we're going to work our way through this. It says we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops, develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us, because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Let's work through that. Firstly, I want to give you three reasons why you can have peace with God, undeserved privilege, hope of future glory, and have problems and trials from the Bible. Three reasons. And uh, there might be more, but I've come up with three. John 16, 33, here's the words of Jesus. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Everyone say amen. You're like, ah, I'm not convinced. I don't know if I want to say amen to that. Because it is. You're like, maybe if I don't say amen enthusiastically, I'll have less. It's like, if I'm like, amen, then God's like, ah, oh, I saw that, I saw that. He has some problems and trials. 
No, but the point is that we're in a fallen world and that we haven't been removed from that fallen world and we're going to brush up against that fallenness every day of our lives as long as we're here. It's not because you have a lack of peace with God. It's because you live in a fallen world. And here's the truth. As Jesus says, but take heart because I've overcome the world. Can I get an amen? There we go. Now we're getting excited. Jesus has overcome. And that is the bit that should make us excited because if we're not excited about that, we're always going to be left wondering, is Jesus really big enough, good enough, present enough in my life to help me overcome the circumstances of this life or will the circumstances be bigger than Jesus? And there's an insecurity in us as Christians that maybe we'll go through something that Jesus won't be able to get us through. And the joy of this faith is that only in facing problems and trials do we discover the bigness of Jesus. Second reason why you can have problems and trials and still be hunky-dory with God, it's not a theological term. Ephesians 6 verse 12 for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So you, we're in a battlefield. You're living in a war zone. And there's a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan or darkness. And if you find yourselves in the midst of warfare, don't be surprised. And here's the good news. At least you're fighting the devil because you used to cooperate with him. That was a little joke. And it's funny because it's true. But that's the point, right? When we're in the kingdom of darkness, unwittingly we had given our world to building his kingdom. And now God translates us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And now we spend our lives opposing him. And in that process, you're going to experience warfare. But God has equipped us for the battle. And another place of great, source of great encouragement is when we realize that we have authority over the enemy and God is with us. Third reason why you can have problems and trials and still be in a great relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. That is a good place for a dramatic pause and drink of water. God disciplines those he loves because we're his children. He doesn't punish. Punish is punitive. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He was punished. We're disciplined. It's instructive, it's educational, it's meant to make us more mature and like Jesus. And then in another place, further on in this chapter, it actually says, what father is there who doesn't discipline the child that he loves? And you who are parents know that you discipline your kids for two reasons. One, you love them, and two, you love yourself. Because you know if you don't discipline your kids, you're going to give way to bad behavior, and that bad behavior is going to be destructive in their lives. And we know this inherently. And God disciplines those he loves. And I look at that verse and I go, you know what? Like of all the things I've gone through and all the painful experiences, most of them were my own doing. Like God didn't have to bring along hard circumstances for that. I just did it to myself by my own immaturity and my own sinfulness and my own stupidity or whatever. But God used that. But there are seasons of our life when you find yourself in tough circumstances and it's the doing of God and he does it for our discipline. Why? Because God can't bless an ill-disciplined child. What happens if you, 
if you have a spoiled kid and he he's poorly disciplined, he's wild, he's out of control, he turns 18 and his dad buys him a BMW. What happens? Is that scenario ever going to end well? It's going to be a very expensive life lesson and you hope that at some point he doesn't kill himself or his friends or someone else. Well, what happens if you've got an ill-disciplined kid who's a little bit full of himself, a little bit arrogant, a little bit proud, and he goes straight out of varsity and he's made a senior manager in daddy's business? How's he going to treat the employees? How's he going to treat the labor force? How's he going to treat the people around him? And we look at that situation, we go, that is wrong. That should never happen. And God's like, I mean, as normal people, we understand this, and God's the same. Like, and God's discipline is intended to prepare the character within us that he's able to bless. I'm so grateful for my dad's discipline in my life. Now, because there's a verse here that says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful, but afterwards, in another version, it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness. And so you go through things that are difficult in the moment, but afterwards there's peace and joy and righteousness. I remember some of the things of my dad's discipline. He had this stick called wisdom stick. It was like a plank with a handle. It had here wisdom written on it. Actually, my older brother stole it, sorted it in half, half and half, and hid it at the bottom of the toy box. Didn't slow down my dad, though. He had other means. And I remember, you know, because like if my mom, like I know it's a different day, and like getting hardings is like controversial, but it wasn't when I was growing up. It was just what happened. And I'm thankful for it now because he loved me enough to discipline me. And I remember, like my mom said, like if the three boys were acting up, my mom said, you're getting a hiding. We'd be like, yeah, okay, go for it. But if she said, when your dad gets home, you're getting a hiding, we'd be like, ah, no. We'd be like, mom, please, just beat us now. Beat us, please. And there's my dad, and like he was managing a branch for Berryman in those days. He was often gone by like 6, 6.30, gets home at like 6. He's been gone for like 12 hours. He comes down the driveway, and there's three boys running down the driveway. Daddy, we're sorry. And he opens the door and he's like, what's going on? We're like, sorry. I said, ah, I worked 12 hours. I come home and start beating kids. <laughs> I remember so clearly, my dad had a rule about hidings. Two things, actually models the heart of God. Number one, he'd give us the hiding, then he'd say, now give me a hug. I'd be like, ah, I don't want to give you a hug because I was mad. And then as soon as I gave him that hug, it's like all that angst just melted away. And I knew my dad still loved me. I knew this wasn't because we had broken relationship. I just knew that my dad was disciplining me. And the second rule was you, you never speak about the reason you were disciplined ever again. Like when you do the second that thing again next week, doesn't it? Hey, remember last week? It's like, no, that's done. New day. Which is the same like God in the way he disciplines us and How many of you are grateful for the discipline your parents had? How many of that they instilled you? And in, in you have a Father in heaven that's interested in your well-being. And it's got nothing to do with lack of relationship. It's actually evidence that he loves you. So here's the, from the top again. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. You know, faith is one of those things you can have it in the moment, 
But when you have to have faith over the long haul, it deepens our level of faith. Man, you, you get up and you choose to believe God for something, for provision. And it's been a year later and you're still struggling, but you still know God's a provider. And you look at all the times that he has provided rather than all the times, well, all the ways he hasn't provided yet. And you build your faith on what he has done rather than what he hasn't. And it builds your faith because it's only in tough times that we develop that endurance, that faith over the long haul. And endurance develops strength of character. Choosing the right thing in the right direction consistently produces character. You know how this works in a person's life? If someone uh, makes a good decision, they make a courageous decision, they'll say, man, that, that person made a courageous decision, but they make 20 of them, and suddenly they're no longer making courageous decisions, they're just a courageous person. The decision in the moment over the long haul has resulted in a character being shaped, and that's what happens through difficult times. Character matters. We live in a world where skill matters or humor matters or money matters. We literally will make excuses and give more grace to people who've got more skill or more money because we think it buys them some gray area. Literally, with some sports people, we'll overlook inconsistencies because of their sporting achievements or people who are successful business people will overlook some lack of character because of they're successful, but God's not like that. Character matters to God. Because character allows God to bless us without it becoming about us. Character is the proving ground for blessing and promotion. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And you might go, hang on, hang on, hang on. I thought salvation was by grace through faith. And it doesn't say that character strengthens our salvation. It says that character strengthens our hope of salvation. What happens is in the development of characters, your hope in who God is and his ability to save and work in your life deepens. See, the Bible talks about confident hope, faith in the future. Really speaking, hope is future-oriented faith and faith is past-oriented faith. So faith is like, I, I trust Jesus has wiped away my sin. I trust in him and who he is. We're faith in God, and our hope is what we're still waiting for. So often in Bible, in, in the Bible, like we talk, we think about faith and faithfulness as two different things. It's like faith is a verb; it's something I do, and faithfulness is an adjective. It describes who I am. God, you're a faithful God; it's a description of who He is. But biblically speaking, faith and faithfulness is the same word. In Hebrew, it literally is the same same word. So to have faith and to be faithful is the same thing. Why? Because as you consistently have faith in the same direction, it becomes your character. It's a description of who you are. And that's how character strengthens our hope in salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. Having hope can be a dangerous thing. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. In other words, if you've got a hope and it's disappointed, you end up with a sick heart. And what happens is if we place our hope in the wrong things, then we end up with a sick heart. In other words, if you had a dream that one day I'm going to get married and this person's going to love me so wonderfully, all my insecurities leave. What happens when you get married? In the first bit, you're in the bubble. And then the bubble, you know, they say it takes about two years for that heightened emotion experience 
being in love to wear off. And then we're just left with ourselves and that person. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, I've got the same insecurities. And sometimes they're deeper. Because we think the person won't love us because of the things we think is wrong with us. And now you're in that space where you have to grow. You see, it's only in difficult times that you realize your hope was in the wrong thing. I mean, I had hoped my marriage would be the solution to my life. I had hoped having kids would make my heart full. I hoped that success in my career was going to give me a sense of importance and belonging. I hoped that money was going to give me a sense of peace and security. I hoped all these things, and it's only through difficult times that we realize, man, I've placed my hope in the wrong thing. But the Bible says in Psalm 25 verse 3, no one who hopes in you, in God, will ever be put to shame. And it's only through the difficult seasons of our life that we realize our hope was in the wrong thing and that we get to reorient it towards Jesus. Because those who hope in Jesus will never be put to shame. For we know how dearly God loves us. Where's that verse? For we know how dearly God loves us. It's a strange thing that problems and trials result in knowing how much God loves us. Because like in my thinking, it's like when I'm on a beach in Mauritius drinking pina coladas, then I know how much God <laughs> loves me. And the truth is about the Bible is that actually we need blessing. There's a part of God's character we only learn through blessing because we realize that God is a lavish God. He's a God of abundance. And and the Psalm 1611, David said, I would have lost heart unless I believed. I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's not to say that now we only learn about God's love through pain. No, we learn it in blessing too. But we also learn about it in difficult circumstances. I'm going to explain why with an analogy from marriage. You know when you, you're married and maybe you're going through a difficult season of your life, like something's transitioning, something's difficult, and you, you, you know that you're not being your friendliest to your spouse. And it is, marriage is a funny thing because everyone else will get the better version of you. So you know how maybe it's been weeks or months or whatever, and you're in this difficult space, and like you're just quite, not quite clicking, and like maybe it's just my marriage, maybe you guys are all awesome but and it's difficult and you're grumpy with each other and that person sees you at your worst and it's like and then you're driving somewhere and like this is a you know you're driving somewhere you've just had that tense conversation again and it's like prickly in that car and then you get to wherever you are and your spouse gets out the car and they're like hello how are you doing and you're like where have you been I haven't seen you in months Except they could say, um, Teresa could say that about me. Because it's in our most intimate relationships that people see the best and the worst of us. See, you can fake it for an hour and a half, two hour dinner. You can't day in, day out in your own home. And here's the thing is that at the heart of us, what we're really afraid of is is that if I ooze some of my junk, some of my muck, some of my yuckness over my spouse, will they still love me? Or will at some point that love run out? And 
And so often, like, you, you might have been living in this space with your spouse for a while, and, and you, you're actually feeling a little bit insecure, like, maybe my spouse is just fed up with me. I know I'm fed up about being grumpy all the time, and I'm fed up about being in this space, but maybe they're fed up. And so you do that thing, like, you, at night, and, you, and the lights go out, and you, you do that shuffle, you know, across, because you, you want to connect. You just, you just want them to put their arms around you and say, I still love you. Because at the heart of us, we fear if someone sees my unloveliness, will they still love me? And it's only in the midst of trials and sorrows when we find ourselves directing our anger at God or directing our frustration at God and saying stuff like, David did, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Or Jeremiah did, God, do not forsake me where you actually find yourself questioning his goodness or questioning whether he loves you or question, and you say, find yourself praying prayers and saying things to God that you never thought you would say and you discover that in that place he still loves you he still wraps his arms around you he still cares about you it's only in that space that you'll understand the true value of his love and you'll realize he doesn't bless me because I'm always awesome he blesses me because he's the blesser and he loves me and he's full of grace and he's full of goodness otherwise you'll always be insecure thinking that his love for you depends on your behavior and your performance and when you find yourself in the worst seasons of your life and you still realize man my God loves me we find ourselves relaxing in his love when we were I'm going to end with this verse when we were utterly helpless Christ came at just the right time and died for our sinners. The truth is, is this series was called Romans, the faith to quit. And the reason we quit, in other words, that we give up trying so hard to be good Christians is because we're actually, we're, when it comes to our relationship with God, we're utterly helpless. And I want to explain that to you. So we we're we're understand the fact that when we come to faith in Jesus, we're utterly helpless because the Bible says we are dead in our sins and our trespasses and God gave us new life. A person that's dead can't resurrect themselves. And we had Paul Redden here in the first service and you know, when his heart stopped and he died and someone gave him CPR and, and they used the defibrillator, the shock machine, they brought him back to life like he couldn't do that for himself because he was dead and so we're like okay well I'm in my sins Jesus has to do it but now that I'm a Christian surely like my own effort plays a pretty big role in the way this is headed I'm going to give you two places that actually your effort makes no difference or, or, or isn't the result in the end the end result you want isn't the determining factor in the end result you want number one fruitfulness John chapter 15 Jesus teaches, abide in me and I will abide in you. He who abides in me and I abide in him will bear much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Without me you can do nothing. So if you want to have a fruitful life for God, you want fruitfulness around you, you cannot do that without Jesus. In fact, Without him, you can do nothing. In other words, everything, any fruit you've ever seen around your life is because of the goodness of Jesus. 
And so in that area, you are utterly helpless to bear fruit for Jesus apart from him. Number two, in changing, what the Bible calls changing, or changing, maturing, growing as a person is through the process of repentance, to change the way you think and agree with God, and it changes us. And the Bible says is that repentance is a gift from God. God grants people the gift of repentance, so God makes it possible for people to repent so that they can change. So you can't bear fruit without him, and you can't change as a person without him. Which is pretty much everything we're about. (laughs) I want to be a different person. That's the work of Jesus. Place your faith in him. I want to have fruit for you, God. That's the work of Jesus. Place your faith in him. And being utterly helpless never felt so good because we realized in that space that Jesus wants to be with us, wants to work in us, wants to add his life to our life, wants to work in us, to make us, to, the Bible says, to will, to, to want the right thing and to have the ability to do it. And so Paul says, all the more I will boast in my weaknesses, in my persecutions, in my trials, in my infirmities, for... His grace is sufficient for me, and his strength is made perfect in weakness. So the Bible says weakness is something, I mean, the, the world, the community, the, the society in which we live says weakness is something to dis, be despised, but Jesus goes, no, weakness is the very seedbed for my greatness to work in your life. Do you have enough faith to give up? And trust the goodness of God to work in you and through you. Hey, it doesn't depend on me trying really hard to be a good Christian. It really depends on the life of Jesus in me and through me. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much that though we're utterly helpless, Jesus Christ comes at just the right time, that he died for us sinners, that he infuses us with his life, that he gives us himself. And I thank you, God, that we have peace with you. We have undeserved privilege. We have the hope of future glory. And I thank you, God, that our trials and tribulations, God, the things we go through will only help us to realize more and more your great love for us and for you to bring your blessing and your fullness into our lives. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.